0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Genesis chapter 27, and uh, we do have our sermon notes posted in our Google Drive folder, so if you want to follow along, um, you can access that through your mobile devices. Um, You know, as I was singing and thinking and um, just meditating on, on what God wants to teach us today, but also kind of thinking through what Tyson was leading us to think about with the promise there in Genesis chapter 3 that a, a Redeemer was coming, a Savior was coming, and, and I believe that um, there was anticipation from the line of Seth that at some point the Redeemer was going to come, and um, then God clarifies even further that it's going to come from Abraham's line. And um, I think as we see in Scripture here, we saw um, over the past couple of weeks introducing ourselves to Isaac and his children that as God continues to solidify his plans of bringing a redeemer through uh, the line of Seth, through the seed of the woman, and then eventually through the line of Abraham, we see uh, offspring after offspring fail to live up to those expectations. Right. So we talk about these Old Testament heroes and, and their faith is exemplified there for us in the book of Hebrews, but uh, we see failure, we see, uh, we see disappointment, we see failure by them to live up to the, the ability to save Uh, others because they essentially cannot save themselves either, that their righteousness falls short of God's standard. And so we're going to see that once again today as we delve further into the story of Isaac and his family. We're going to see God's grace to continue to work with this family uh, because we're going to see their continued lack of faith at times and their uh, sinful responses uh, to some of the things that God wants to do in their life. Last week, you'll remember, we looked at Genesis chapter 26, a passage that I told you you may have never heard a sermon uh, preached on. It's, it should be what we think about when we think of Isaac. I think, unfortunately, due to how uh, Sunday school curriculum is laid out, uh, Genesis chapter 26 is not talked about a whole lot. Um, it's typically Isaac and his uh, failure to bless Jacob and his uh, falling prey to that deception of Jacob and Rebecca. Um, but Isaac chapter, or Genesis chapter 26 talks about Isaac um, and really shows the faith and the the perseverance of his life. Uh, it starts off showing some failure in that he um, turns his, or is willing to turn his wife over as, as uh, he claims that she's his sister. Um, we see that God steps in and intervenes. Um, from our summary sentence last week, we said that the promises of God are designed to be received by faith, allowing times of temptation and trial to become proving grounds for God's ongoing presence to work good resulting in the world acknowledging his glory. And so we see the promises of God communicated to Isaac, and then we see him go through times of temptation and trial. Uh, He's tempted with fear. Uh, We see that he falls prey to that temptation, and he concocts the same plan that his dad did to, to lie about his wife's identity. But we see that God is omnipresent, and we really tried to highlight that doctrine last week, that God is everywhere in the story, and God's presence remains upon Isaac in a unique and special way. He's always working good for his children even if that means uh, bringing out sinful situations and exposing them, right? So Isaac, it says, dwelt in the land for a long time under this lie, and God doesn't allow it to stay that way, and he exposes that lie, and he allows the king to see Isaac and Rebekah interacting as husband and wife. And so it's a reminder to us that if we're God's children, his presence is obviously always with all of creation, but we said specifically that as a child of God, his presence is uniquely with us as believers in that his presence is always working good for us. And we see that all in chapter 26. He works good for Isaac in that he won't let him stay in sin. He works good for Isaac in the midst of famine, and he's blessing him in a way that even if there wasn't a famine, it would be considered a great blessing. But specifically because there's a famine, the fact that he's turning over a 10,000% increase in his investment, it's unheard of. Um, And we see that uh, all through the chapter, there's this anticipation building by Abimelech and the uh, Philistine people that are watching this unfold. By the end of the chapter, they are coming to Isaac and they are giving uh, honor and credit and glory to Isaac's God. Right. Um, And so trials and temptations are given to us. They're a proving ground for us to show that God is always working good for us uh, with the hope that the world will acknowledge his glory based on how we are responding to to those situations. And so I challenged you last week, does a theology of God's omnipresence dominate your life, causing temptations to be crushed and fears to be extinguished? That's what God's omnipresence should do for us. The fact that he is always with us means that we we can't do anything without him knowing it. We can't do anything without him seeing it. So there's that fearful expectation that God is not going to allow us to get away with sin. But then there's that uh unbelievable encouragement that comes from knowing that god is always with us and always working good for us and we see isaac kind of learning that lesson learning about god's omnipresence throughout uh, chapter 26 which brings us to uh kind of coming back to the account of his son so we told you there's an abbreviated stop there where we don't have any mention of jacob and esau and it's possible that this is a recounting of a story where they're not even yet born Uh, But when we get back into Genesis chapter 27, uh, we see that story pick back up. We left off with um, Jacob uh, manipulating the situation and stealing uh, Esau's birthright. And we're going to see those events play out today. So I'm going to put our summary sentence up there while you're copying that down. You'll remember uh, before we looked at chapter 26, we saw specifically uh, we looked at God choosing Jacob. And so we talked a lot about God's sovereignty and election and how God chose Jacob over Esau. And it wasn't because Jacob was a better son than Esau. Bible tells us he did it before anything had ever been done. And that reminds us that God does things in ways to prevent us from being able to boast. And then we saw in the back half of 25, that while God chose Jacob Esau's held accountable for his choices, right? Like, it's not that Esau can excuse his behavior because God chose someone else over him. We see that God allows that story to play out in such a way that Esau is shown to be culpable for his actions, that Esau is responsible for not choosing God, right? He forfeits the blessing. He sells his birthright uh, for a moment of immediate satisfaction, immediate gratification. He exchanges the eternal for the temporary, I told you, I think the, the main reason for that being there, because you could theoretically take that story out and the narrative will av- advance just fine, right? Because we're going to see the blessing applied to Jacob uh, play out today. But I told you, if that story is removed, you come to Genesis 27, you read about Esau and, and him losing the birthright because Jacob is deceptive. And you can easily walk away from this chapter saying Esau is completely taken advantage of. It's unfair that Esau doesn't get the blessing Jacob is a schemer and he's evil and he's deceptive. So the selling of the birthright story is placed there, I think, to show us Esau's responsibility. So that when we get to this story, we're reminded and we're not sympathetic like we we could have been because we know Esau's responsible for this. And we're going to see that once again, that Esau is responsible and he's further responsible for how he reacts to this whole situation playing out the way that it does. All right? Um... In our discussion groups this morning, we talked a little bit about um, who's most responsible in this story for the sin and the evil that seems to play out. I told you there's four main characters. There's Jacob and Esau, but then there's Rebecca and Isaac. Everybody's kind of playing a role. Everybody's kind of playing a part. Um, Anybody see some things that really stood out to you from a bad perspective, Uh, wrong motives, bad actions, anything really stood out to you that... Puts that person maybe above the rest as far as being responsible in this story. Anybody see any redeeming qualities that are worth mentioning about anybody that maybe um, over allows that to overlook some of the poor choices they made? Any discussion that led us to see some really bad actions or maybe some redeeming actions in this story that, that we can mention real quick before we get into it? Yeah, Rebecca is definitely playing a, a an important role in this story in that while she's behind the scenes a lot in this story, she's definitely the driving force behind some of the things that play out in this story. Uh huh. Right, yeah, there's definitely some defiance, I think, by Isaac at the beginning in that God had already communicated that Jacob was supposed to get the blessing, he did that from before they were even born, and now Esau is very intentionally trying to go, go around that plan and bless Esau. Um, and I think I heard some discussion as to, well, do we really know that Isaac knew about this? Because we're told that, that um, Rebecca is told by God this. We have to kind of assume that she told Isaac because we're not clearly told that Isaac knew. But uh, the reason that I, I believe strongly that he did know is that if he did not know, all Rebecca has to do in this story is come to, to Isaac and say, honey, um, I was told from birth that Jacob's supposed to get the blessing. And I overheard that you're about to give Esau the blessing and I need to inform you that that can't happen. But she doesn't do that, right? She seemingly uh, reacts and operates as though she's already told him that. And he's in defiance of that. And now she feels like she has to work around it. So you've got Isaac trying to work around uh, what God has revealed as being the plan. And now you have Rebecca seemingly trying to operate and work around her husband, who I have to think she's already tried to explain this to him, tried to have told this to him, um, and maybe there was an agreement. Maybe he was well receptive of it initially, and now she feels like, I've been betrayed, because all along Isaac's been telling me, yes, I'm going to give it to Jacob. Yes, I'm going to give it to Jacob. Yes, I'm going to give it to Jacob. And now she happens to overhear eavesdropping on this conversation that, that something else is in play. And so uh, there seems to be the fact that she's operating off the fact that Isaac knows this, or else she would have informed him in this passage, I believe. Any other thoughts on uh, bad actions, redeeming actions in this story? Yep, there's lying by Jacob. Does anybody think that Rebecca and Jacob are justified and right for what they do in this story? Surprisingly, there's a lot of commentators that do, um, that think because God has said Jacob gets the blessing, that this is a righteous response by Rebecca and Jacob to pursue it. And they want to relate it similar to how uh, Rahab hides the spies and lies about the spies and how the uh, Israelite midwives um, defy Pharaoh's authority and lie about uh, killing the babies in Egypt. And so they want to say, while the actions are not okay, lying and deception, the in motives justify those actions, um, now, I'm taking for granted the fact that the commentaries that I use don't believe that, but they all said there's a lot of commentators out there that would say that that this is justified. Um, I don't think it's justified. And I'm going to explain to you why I don't think it's justified, but I think everybody at play in this story, uh, there's an element of wrong to their motives. There's an element of wrong to their actions, um, and it's really a testimony to God's grace that he continues to use this family and continues to plan to bring Christ through this family. It's all God's love and grace. There's certainly no boasting that comes out of this story by any of these uh, individuals' actions. Okay, summary sentence for today. While God's plans are always accomplished despite our failures, our failures lead to consequences being included into his plans. Okay, so while God's plans are always accomplished, right, We know that God's plan was for Jacob to receive the blessing. That's God's plan, and it is accomplished as he said it would be at the end of this chapter. But there's failures by God's people in this story. And it reminds us that our failures don't mess up God's plans. They don't prevent God's plans. They don't thwart God's plans. But our failures lead to consequences being included in God's plans. And so we're going to see some consequences to their actions that would not have been necessary had they put trust in God. I think if if everybody responds like they should have in this story, Jacob would have gotten the blessing. I think the family would have stayed together, and there would have been a, a, a lack of conflict that we see at the end of this story. So God's plans are always accomplished that there's no doubt that his plans are going to come to fruition in this story. And doesn't matter what Isaac's trying to do, what Esau's trying to do. doesn't matter how poorly Jacob and Rebekah handle what they're trying to do. God's plans were going to be accomplished, but their failures lead to consequences being included in God's plans to bless Jacob. All right, a couple of thoughts just to get us started before we get into the narrative here. First of all, Chapter 27 is ultimately the playing out of choices made in chapter 25. So we saw God choosing Jacob in chapter 25. We saw Esau choosing uh, immediate gratification over God in chapter 25. Choices were made in chapter 25 that now play out here in chapter 27. This is God choosing Jacob. Uh, This is Esau not choosing God. Um, And this is kind of the the, the final outcome to those choices that were made in chapter 25. Um, this chapter is also based a little bit on misinformation. Um, the story starts off with there being kind of an assumption that Isaac's about to die. Um, and depending on which dates you're using, he lives at least 30, if not 80 more years after these events. Um, and so it's kind of a, a misdiagnosis. He's got some troubling um symptoms and some consequences of some things that he's dealing with health-wise, but he continues to live. And so it it seems to be that he's on his deathbed, and he doesn't have long to live, and he's kind of rushing around trying to put his things in order, but he actually ends up living uh, for a lot longer. Um, And I think it's also interesting to see how this healthy marriage becomes unhealthy in this chapter. Think about it. We, We had a recipe for what should have been a God-honoring marriage prior to this chapter. We have a man who demonstrated an obedience to his father to the point of death, right? Isaac's willing to get on the altar and, and let his dad sacrifice him. So we have this submissive, obedient, godly man Then we have this submissive, obedient woman who responds to God's leading and says, I'll leave my family and my country and everything to go marry a man I've never met. And really steps out in anticipation of what God wants to do in their family. So you've got godly man, godly woman coming together. They're trusting God in the formation of their relationship. And then we see in chapter 25 that these two individuals are prayer warriors, right? Like these people pray constantly. They're a praying family, a praying couple. Isaac's praying for 20 years for her to have a baby and most likely praying with her for her to have a baby. And then when there's turmoil and conflict within her womb, Rebecca is very quickly turning to God in prayer. So we have what seems to be on paper what we would describe as a great marriage, right? Godly man, godly woman, who seem to understand their roles in the, in the marriage, uh, who are leaning heavily on God and his wisdom and guidance. And then we don't see any of that here in this chapter. We see a man driven by his desires. We see a woman who's manipulative and deceptive. We see neither one of them who feels comfortable communicating with each other. Um, just a drastic contrast to what we see previous regarding their marriage. And we see that kind of unfold here in this chapter. God's plans are always accomplished, but our failures get included into his plans when we step out of his will. First point I want to make in our notes this morning, family tension is created when God's will is set aside for man's will. Family tension is created when God's will is set aside for man's will. And this, this should be just a universal truth. It's not directly applied to this chapter alone. This is for any family represented in here today. If you set aside God's will for man's will, then tension will arise between you and your spouse, between you and your kids. It's guaranteed to happen. And it certainly plays out in this chapter, but it would certainly play out in the lives of any of our families if we're willing to set aside God's will for man's will. We're going to see this uh, be the case for all four of these main characters. In Genesis chapter 26, right here at the very end, before we get into 27, I intentionally left out these verses from last week's sermon because I believe they probably are better suited to be in chapter 27 because Esau's marriages are discussed, and then this passage kind of closes out with there being a concern about Jacob's marriages, and so he's, he's sent back home to find a wife, much like Abraham sent a servant back to find a wife for Isaac. So these marriages kind of bookend the story that takes place in between. So we're going to start by looking uh, at the end of chapter 26, verse 34. It says, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Berai, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. We can see right off the bat that Man's will over God's will leads to tension and it leads to bitterness. This is contrary to how the rest of the family was operating, right? Um, Abraham married from his people. Abraham was very intentional. Remember, at the end of his life, I am not letting Isaac marry any of the women around here. We're going to go back home and get somebody that comes from our people um, and brings Rebecca back to him. And then we see Esau disregarding that, and we'll touch on that a little bit more um, as we get into it. Um, When Isaac was old, starting in verse 27, his eyes were dim so that he could not see. He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, "'My son,' and he answered, "'Here I am.'" He said, "'Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me.'" and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Family tension is started here because Isaac sets aside God's will for his will, specifically in the fact that he is led by his appetite rather than God's promises. He's led by his appetite rather than God's promises. As you read through this chapter, you're going to find that uh, the term for savory meat is used six times in this chapter. Uh, venison is mentioned seven times eating is mentioned eight times it's very clear that isaac is being motivated and driven by his physical appetites now here we've got it being driven by by food appetites but we talked last week that that this certainly translate into any type of physical bodily appetite um And when we're driven by that, it definitely separates us from God's will and and man's will becomes elevated. When we are driven by what we want, whatever that may be, whatever appetite we're giving into, it leads to tension within the family. Isaac is led by his appetite rather than God's promises. He's motivated by gratification. He wants Esau to provide for his cravings. His decision-making here is based on appetite rather than the spirit. Like he is clearly walking in the flesh rather than walking in the spirit here. He's disregarding whether uh, if God had told him that Jacob was the blessed son or whether Rebecca had told him, he's certainly throwing all that wisdom out, all that guidance and all that instruction out, and he's strictly being driven by his appetite here. He thinks he's about to die, and he certainly wants a great last meal to satisfy himself. And so his desire to bless Esau is driven strictly By the fact that Esau provides something for him, driven by his appetite. He's willing to exchange obedience to God for immediate satisfaction. Let's be honest, he's not operating that much different than Esau here, right? Esau shows up in chapter 25 and says, I'll give you the inheritance, Jacob, for that pot of stew. Isaac in this chapter is saying, I will give the blessing to the wrong son for a plate of of deer meat here. He's not functioning that much different than his son. He's willing to exchange the eternal. He's willing to forfeit what God has called him to do. And we're not talking um, ambiguity here where I'm not sure what God's will is for my life in this situation. We're talking about revealed will. We're talking about God stepping into creation and saying, This is what you're supposed to do. Most of us don't get that kind of clear guidance, right? Beyond what God has revealed to us in scripture, the rest of it, we're being prompted by the spirit, trying to lean on the wisdom of the church and and fellow believers to help guide us in our decision-making process. And there's times when we've got choices before us and and we're not fully clear on which one is the best for God's glory. And so we make decisions based on wisdom alone and, and we don't get to rely on revealed will. Isaac has revealed will here. He knows what he's supposed to do. Again, whether God told him or Rebekah told him, I think it's clear that Isaac knew what was supposed to happen here. He says, you know what? I'm willing to forfeit what I'm supposed to do. I'm willing to forfeit God's best and potentially forfeit God doing anything else in my life moving forward. Right there, There's no guarantee here that Isaac gets God's continued favor moving forward. Beyond the fact that he's the promised seed, we don't, we don't have any assurance here that Isaac would, would, would have God's favor. I mean, God could take him right here after this. He, he already believes that he's at the end of his life. And the lasting legacy that he's about to leave here, if he were to die in the next few days, is I forfeited what I knew God wanted me to do for a plate of food. That's what he's willing to do. He's driven by his appetite. Driven by his appetite. Um, his love for his son is based on what his son can do for him. Right, there's nothing redeeming that we're told about Esau that would make you say, well, that's why he loves him, right? And it's not even that Isaac's claiming, I love him because he's my son. Like, I know he does a lot of bad things, but, but he's my son. No, it's, I love what you cook, right? Like, it's very superficial, the reasons that he loves him so much and why he's tying the blessing to Esau. You may, and some commentators even said, you may even get this picture that Esau is living, uh, living through his son, it's as though he, he wants to be the guy out there hunting. He wants to be able to, to do all these manly things that Esau is doing, that he's almost living vicariously through his son potentially here. Um, whatever, whatever the case, he's certainly in love with what his son does for him uh, and, wh- and how he pleases him, and he's willing to forfeit what God has told him to do for a plate of food. I think Isaac is also motivated by guilt here. Look at how he wants to do this back in our text he's having a conversation with esau alone and moving forward into the chapter he thinks it's him and esau alone in the tent when the blessing is given and we know from other passages in scripture this should have been a big to do this should have been a big celebration you're passing on the family authority, the family wealth, the family promise. You're passing on the Abrahamic covenant to your son. And all of a sudden, it's a private matter between you and your son. Your wife's not brought into it. The sons that he's supposed to be in charge of aren't brought into it. The, the servants that are now going to be answering to, uh, to, to who he thinks is Esau aren't brought into it. He's operating in secret and I think he's doing that because he's motivated by guilt here. He knows this goes against God's will. He keeps Rebecca out of the loop and doesn't want her reminders. This is, this is a sad state for Isaac to be in. I mean, this should have been a celebration. This should have been a, a big to-do. This should have been uh, something that drew attention to the whole family, to everybody underneath him. And I think we can see very clearly there's guilt all over this. I'm going to have to sneak this to Esau. I can't, I can't tell Rebecca about it because Rebecca will just remind me once again, this is supposed to go to Jacob, but I don't want it to go to Jacob. I want it to go to Esau. He's my favorite. We've already seen the text highlights the fact that they favored the boys. So he's doing this in secret. And I think he's doing it because he knows he's guilty of doing something that's not in accordance with God's plan. He's motivated by gratification, right? He wants to have his his, his fleshly desires pleased. And oftentimes that means that we have to seek out those those uh, gratifications in secret, right? Like when you find somebody that's being driven and motivated by their appetites and desires, whether it's sexual, whether it's uh, it's driven by food, whether it's driven by love of money, love of possessions, oftentimes it leads to decisions being made in secret, actions being done in secret. It oftentimes leads to sin. In order for you to get the gratification that you long for. And that certainly applies here to Isaac. He wants um, immediate gratification. He knows that if he informs other people, he will be held accountable for that. And so he desires to do it in secret. And then I think he's motivated by personal preference. He goes against God's desires and selects Esau. He rejects the revealed will of God. He intentionally tries to bless Esau to rule over Jacob. We're going to see that in this chapter. The blessing that's given, there's implications there that your brothers are supposed to submit to you. Completely defies what God said in chapter 25, that the younger would rule over the older. He ignores God's word. He ignores his wife. And he he ignores all the moral red flags about his son. Think about it. Given the fact that God's already told him what to do, and I'm sure his wife has reminded him, there's still all these moral red flags that should have been raised for him. My son doesn't know how to pick a wife and he can't settle on one wife. And He's not a husband of one man. He's bringing in other women and, and foreign women and uh, women that worship other idols. And he may have already seen that playing out in Esau's life. And Esau not worshiping the God that's going to be the source of all the blessing he's trying to give him. I'm sure that Isaac probably had heard at some point about the exchange between Jacob and Esau. The fact that he doesn't even regard this as as important as as Isaac wants him to regard it as. All that's kind of thrown out the window. I want you to be the blessed son. and, And in order to get it, I want you to make me something that just tastes really good to me. Gratification, guilt, and personal preference are the driving forces behind Isaac's actions in this story. Then we come to Rebecca. And She's led by fear rather than patience. It says in verse 5, Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob, we'll stop right there. Um, I think it's interesting that that Rebecca is able to provide the exact type of food that that Isaac seems to crave and want. So there seems to be even an element there that it's beyond just the food that he wants. It's tied somehow to Esau in a unique way because there's no discussion, right? When Jacob is trying to deceive his dad, there's no discussion about, is this really the food you normally bring me? Like it's, your voice doesn't sound right. Something seems off, but the food confirms it for him. So she's capable of satisfying her husband, right? And isn't that true about God's promises and how oftentimes we deviate from God's promises? Remember when we went back and looked in Genesis where the tree was a delight to their eyes and it was gonna taste good, but then previously it says that all the trees were a delight to their eyes and all of them tasted good? That sometimes we get this picture that, that Adam and Eve were told to eat of all the vegetables that weren't very good. And then there was this succulent fruit that was so good looking. And it was almost an impossible temptation. No, the picture we have in the Garden of Eden is that everything was good. There was no need to take of this. And the picture we see once again here is that. The wife could provide exactly what the husband needed, but he deviates from the wife providing for him and wants to step out of God's will and find satisfaction in ways that he thinks is better. All the while, God's saying, if you would just follow my plan, you would receive the gratification and satisfaction you want because I'm a good God and I give good gifts. Right. Um, Rebecca hears this and says, "Okay, we got to come up with a plan. She's motivated by fear, I think, here. She acts like Sarah, who she never actually had a chance to meet. But she certainly follows after the example that she left. She wants to work things out her way, right? Sarah starts to panic because she's not had a child, and Abraham and her are getting old. And so she panics and says, okay, God's promised this, but I think he needs our help. So let's bring Hagar into it and let's have you have a child with Hagar. And that's what God's going to do. And that's how God's going to fulfill his promises. And that causes all kinds of problems in that story, right? Well, here, Rebecca seemingly has been banking on the fact that Jacob's supposed to get this blessing. God did tell her directly, even if he didn't tell Isaac directly, definitely told her directly. So for 40 plus years, however long it is, however old they are at this time, I mean, she's just been anticipating this, longing for it. And maybe that's why she was led to favor Jacob over Esau. And now she's panicking because she's thinking, my husband is operating without me. He's not communicating with me. He's about to do something behind my back. And my son's going to miss out on the blessing of eternity here. And so she concocts a plan, panicking and thinking that God made a promise and God can't keep that promise. Right? I'm fearful that what God has told me is not going to happen unless I jump in and get involved. Now, that does not mean that there are times when God promises things and we're supposed to get involved. Right? God promises that there will be tribes and tongues and nations represented before the throne for all eternity, praising him. And then he tells us to go and share the gospel with all nations, tribes and tongues. Right? There are times where we participate in God's promises. I've yet to find a time in scripture where I'm convinced that God asked someone to deceitfully or sinfully get involved in a situation to help him accomplish his promises. And that's what happens here. She resorts to, I'm scared to death that my son's not going to get the blessing that God has told me he's going to get. So I've got to come up with something. And I've got to deceive my husband. I've got to take advantage of his disabilities right now, which is just uh, obviously not a a redeeming thing about her. She leads her son into sin, right? This isn't Jacob's idea. This isn't Jacob's plan. What a tragedy for a parent to suggest sinful activity to their their children. And that's exactly what happens here. You're going to go before your father, who you're supposed to respect and love and be submissive to. And you're going to deceive him and lie to him and trick him and steal from him. That's what's implanted in Jacob's mind by Rebecca. And it's all motivated by fear, I think, rather than patience, she resorts to deception rather than confrontation. Rather than gently rebuking her husband, she schemes to steal. And we're going to talk about this more at the very end. But there is some culpability here, I believe, on Isaac in that he has created a marital environment where her first action is not to confront her husband when he is deviated from God's will. Right? She's made aware of it and maybe even providentially by God, right? Rebecca seems to be in the right place at the right time all throughout this chapter to hear about plans that are going to be detrimental to the family, right? She hears about Esau and and, Jay, and uh, Isaac wanting to bless him. She hears about Esau wanting to kill her son, Jacob. She seems to be at the right time at the right place, but she seems to do the wrong thing. Rather than going to her husband, confronting Isaac, trying to work through it as a, as a married couple, she immediately defaults into scheming. That may be a um, an indictment against their marriage and the communication that had been happening within their marriage. You see a lot of communication between Abraham and Sarah, right? They seem to make decisions together, even if it's wrong decisions. Doesn't seem to be the same type of communication, at least not in this chapter, going on between Isaac and Rebecca. She hears it. Rather than confronting, she resorts to deception, she also resorts to fear rather than trust. She failed to see that God could provide for Jacob a different way. Her love for Jacob guides her more than her trust in God. Right? Like That's what's motivating her. And, and so, you, so you sympathize with her a little bit because you're saying, man, she's, she's doing this out of love for her son, but that certainly can't justify our actions for us to simply excuse it and say, this is for the good of my child. Right? You don't get to excuse poor behavior because you're trying to do something good for your child. Because if anything, you've set your child up as an idol that you're trying to serve and, and to do good things for. And when it deviates you from doing things for God, then we've got a problem. And that seems to be the case here. She, she's deviating from what God has told her and trusting in God to work things out for good. And she's trying to work out good for her family. And it leads to some disaster. Okay, and we're going to see some of the consequences that she gets for the way that she concocts this plan. Um. I mentioned that she failed to see that God could provide for Jacob a different way. You may not be as familiar, but uh, in in the Old Testament, there's a story about um, a prophet named Balaam, right? And he's recruited by a king to come and curse Israel, right? And that's where the donkey steps in, and the donkey tries to deter him from doing this. What happens when Balaam tries to curse Israel? Does anybody know? What happens when he tries to to curse them? He blesses them, right? He can't help himself. Like God overcomes his desire to curse Israel and says, that's not part of my plan. You don't get to do that. And it says that God intervenes and prevents the cursing and produces blessing upon Israel. So we know that God is capable of stepping in when one individual is trying to curse or bless another individual and thwarts that plan if it's not in line with his plan. So it would not have been a, a a bad assumption here to believe that the whole thing could have played out. Esau could have come in with his meat, and here Isaac begins to speak to Esau, and blessing will not come forth from his mouth. It didn't come forth from Balaam's mouth like it was intended to by Balaam. Rebecca doesn't trust God in that way, and, and maybe we shouldn't falter because you know there's plenty of times when we would fail to trust God in similar situations. So lest we be guilty of judging to where we would not also be judged by the same standard. Um, But it is a learning lesson for us that we, moving forward, should learn from this. Remember I told you last week, we can learn from God's word, we can learn from examples, or we can learn from our own bitter experiences. Remember, Isaac had God's revealed word, I'm gonna take care of you. He had examples, because God said, remember, Abraham obeyed me. And then he goes and lies about his wife, Isaac does. And he has to learn from his own bitter experience. So we can learn from examples in scripture. We can learn from examples here in this church, older men sharing uh, lessons to younger men, older women sharing lessons to younger women. We can learn from that or we can learn from our own mistakes. And so this is a great example for us to sit back and say, okay, there are times when God wants to do something in my life and I may be tempted to step in and, and manipulate the situation because I feel like he can't work it out for good. This is a lesson to me that God can do whatever he wants to accomplish his promises, and he doesn't need my sinful help to do it. All right? Esau plays a role in this passage, though. It says that he's motivated, or I put it down, he's motivated by opportunity rather than responsibility. Esau is motivated by opportunity rather than responsibility. This guy likes to seize opportunities um, and likes to disregard responsibility right he sees an opportunity to eat when he's hungry gives up responsibility forfeits it sells it so that he can eat he saw an opportunity to marry two women two women that were willing to agree to come and be his wife two women that said it's okay if you marry her and me seizes an opportunity doesn't seek out guidance from his parents doesn't get their uh, approval for it doesn't honor his parents He marries wives that he chooses. We've already seen that it produces bitterness for his parents. Probably can see that his choice shows further his character, that he's he's responsible for his choices, that God chose Jacob, but Esau made choices as well, and that he's held accountable for. But he also refuses to honor his oath. By that I mean, he made a binding oath to Jacob, he sold his birthright legally. Right, there was no there was really no deception there. Now Jacob took advantage of a guy who was hungry, but there was no deception. Right? He was he was he was he was communicating to Jacob, this is my intent, I'm selling it for this. And it wouldn't be too far fetched to believe that moving forward Esau was mad and discouraged whenever he thought about it, like, man, that stew was good, but now I forfeited all this stuff that would be coming to me at this point in life. Esau may have been dragging around, depressed, and all of a sudden Esau pulls him into the tent and says, or Jacob, or sorry, Isaac pulls Esau into the tent and says, no, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. I'm going to give you the blessing. Esau says, wow, like second chance opportunity here. Forget that I made a binding oath to my brother. I'm not going to honor it. And maybe Esau and Jacob were aware of what God had planned to do all along too, and we could throw that in there too, that he disregards the responsibility to serve his brother like God told him to. But he certainly doesn't honor his parents with the, wife, with the choice of wife. He certainly doesn't honor his brother with the oath that he made with him. He is being driven by opportunity rather than responsibility. But then Jacob plays a role in this passage as well. I left off in verse 11, it says, But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. Jacob is motivated by pressure rather than personal conviction. This is more Rebecca's doing than Jacob's doing. His hesitancy is based on fear of consequence rather than moral value. So lest we think that it's all Rebecca, Jacob likes the idea, right? He's not being forced to do this. He he likes the idea. Yeah, I want the blessing. It's, it's technically mine. But if this is about to happen, I'm about to lose it, then I'm going to do something. I'm okay with it. But his hesitancy isn't based on, Mom, is this the right thing to do? Right? He doesn't say, Mom, maybe we should go talk to Dad and explain it to him that this is supposed to come to me per God. I'm not comfortable doing this to my dad. Like I'm supposed to be submissive to him and obedient to him. I'm not okay with tricking Dad. No, he's more concerned with the consequences. He says, Mom, if Dad finds out, I might get cursed rather than blessed. Like, I'm not convinced that we can pull this off. So his hesitancy is, is is more about consequence rather than moral value. So there's not really a redeeming response here by Jacob. It's more, I'll do this if you can convince me we can get away with it. And his hesitancy is removed based on listening to his mother rather than to God. Right? There's there's no praying here. Right? When we can't have a baby, we pray to God. When our baby doesn't seem to be going well in our stomach, we pray to God. And now when our kids aren't, the, the situation is not playing out like it should. They've abandoned prayer. We don't have any reason to believe that Rebecca went to God and said, God, what should we do here in this situation? You promised me this. You told me this. Guide me in how to respond to this. Nothing. Nothing at all. They, they, they immediately start to act the way that they think is best for the situation. And all four of them play a role in this situation. All four of them are motivated by ungodly desires. Family tensions created when God's will is set aside for man's will, and then number two, unnecessary consequences are experienced when we grasp for God's will. Unnecessary consequences are experienced when we grasp for God's will. Three points here. First of all, Jacob and Rebecca lose for winning. What did Jacob and Rebecca gain from this? From their whole plan, what do they gain from this? Well, Jacob gets blessed. But if we believe God's promises are assured, they already had that before the plan, right? They didn't have to do this. God had already assured them. So at the end of this story, they haven't gained anything. They already had it. Jacob already had assurance before he was ever born. And knowing the insight from Romans 9, before he did anything right or wrong, he had God's choice upon his life. And that is certainly not gained as a result of this story. They, they lose for the simple fact of winning in this situation. They come out of it with Jacob having the blessing, but they already had it. But Jacob and Rebekah lose in this situation. How do they lose from it? Well, Jacob separated from his family, including his mom. We'll see more of this next week, but at the end of this chapter, they have to send Jacob away for fear that Esau is going to kill him. And Jacob doesn't come back until his mom is already dead. So a mom who loved her son, wanted what was best for him, wants him to get the blessing. She never gets to experience that getting lived out. She never gets to experience that. She has to send him away for 20 plus years. He goes back home and works with Laban and and then eventually makes his way back. And, and she's dead by that time. And that should be sorrowful for us to see this, that The blessing was already applied. It didn't have to be worked out this way. The tension didn't have to be increased. She helps create the tension that forces Esau or causes Esau to want to kill Jacob and then has to uh, push her to lead him away to get him to safety. And she loses in this situation because she loses her relationship with her son and he's separated from his family. They both failed to have their faith increase as they instead believed God required their sinful help, right? Every trial, every Every situation that would cause us to trust in God, when we fail to do that, then our faith doesn't increase. That was an opportunity for faith to increase, and we didn't allow our faith to increase. So they lose out on this situation. This was a proving ground for them to trust God and see his goodness, and they miss out on the opportunity to have their faith increase because they stepped in with sinful help. Jacob loses character in this, right? He, He develops a reputation that thousands of years later when we talk about Jacob we say wow Jacob he's the father of the nation of Israel he gets the name Israel he has a a bunch of kids but he was kind of a sneaky guy like he was he was he was deceptive and and a trickster and and that reputation sticks with him even today right he he can't break free from that label he loses here in this situation what's really what's really discouraging is that Not only is he deceptive and lying, he includes God in his lies, right? Look in um, verse 20. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because Yahweh granted me success. I mean, that's, that's, that's borderline blasphemy here. He is including God and his stamp of approval on this whole deceptive plan. It's bold by Jacob to to enter in to this part of the the deception, to say, uh, the reason that I'm already back and the reason I already have the meal prepared is because God is blessing this. Um, Dangerous. Especially when you consider that uh, Psalms uh, chapter 32, 2 says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Contrary to what Jacob believes, God is not blessing him for being deceptive. In fact, he will bear the consequences of his deception. Jacob loses 20 years of his life outside the land. Remember we said Isaac never has to leave the land. Jacob leaves for 20 years here. Um, See, in my mind, I think this could have played out with Rebecca and Jacob confronting Isaac, the Holy Spirit convicting Isaac, him repenting of his desire to to win Esau or to bless Esau. He blesses Jacob. If need be, they send Esau away, right? Because that's what they did with Ishmael. When Ishmael was a threat to Isaac, they don't send Isaac away, they send Ishmael away. And then we send a servant back to Laban and we say, Laban, send us a wife. We're gonna pick a wife and they pick Rachel or Leah, whoever that would have been to play out. She comes back and she leaves her idols there and she leaves the other sister there, whoever, would they wouldn't have come back with two wives, right? But what we see, the consequences, Jacob gets sent away. He spends 20 years working for a guy who's also deceptive towards him. He tries to marry a girl, strikes out, has to marry two women who then bring idols with him. And there's family tension that ensues because of it. He reaps and he sows. He makes poor choices. God had already blessed him. God's still accomplishing plans, but God is now including consequences into those plans. He reaps marital problems and spiritual problems because he doesn't get to stay at home and let the servant go and get his wife. Isaac wins despite trying to lose. That's that's maybe something that's missed in this story, but um, somebody highlighted it here when we were talking a minute ago. He wins in this story despite trying to lose. Isaac attempts to trade the eternal for the immediate. But God thwarts the sinful plans of his children. This is another testimony to God's omnipresence. Jacob or Isaac thinks he's communicating in secret to Esau. He allows Rebecca to overhear it. But God obviously is in the whole account. He's in the whole story. And God says, I'm not going to allow you to bless Esau. I think God had other ways that he could have done that had Rebecca responded appropriately. But what I think is important to note is that God will not allow his children to stay in sin. He disciplines them. He rescues them. He did that with the lie about Rebekah. He allows Abimelech to see it, and he exposes it. He exposes this sin as well. He exposes this sin as well. Isaac attempts to trade it, but God thwarts his plans. Isaac's focus is turned back to God in this story. If we go back to Genesis 27-27, He blesses who he thinks is Esau. He's content with his meal. And then in verse 30, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to the father, let my father rise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father, Isaac, said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes. And he shall be blessed. This plays out and you don't see any indication here that Isaac wants to curse Jacob. You don't see any anger towards Rebekah. You don't see any of the response from Isaac that you do from Esau, right? Like Esau's ready to fight. Esau is ready to pitch a fit and do whatever necessary to regain what he thinks is rightfully his. What does Isaac respond and say? Son, I made a mistake. Like I went against what I thought I was doing, but Jacob's the blessed one now. And then we're going to see it play out next week where... He really comes back and blesses Jacob, intentionally trying to bless Jacob, right? He comes back and re-verifies that blessing to Jacob himself without the disguise. He sends Jacob away to keep him safe. There's no confrontation to Jacob, no confrontation to Rebecca, why? Because I believe he's trembling here because he knows exactly what has happened, that he thought he was getting away with something and God stepped in and prevented it. I think immediately when he realizes Here I was trying to bless Esau, and Jacob got it. Despite my best efforts, God allowed his plans to be accomplished. I think he's trembling, and I think his response uh, makes that very evident. And so while he was trying to lose, Isaac actually is, is one of the winners in this situation because he expresses renewed faith now. His faith is shown in how he responds to this deception. No anger, no cursing. It seems to get him back on the track that he was on prior to this. Seems to, to renew his mind. Seems to, to recapture him to God's plans and purposes. And number three, Esau keeps losing. Esau just keeps losing. His tears here reflect frustration for his failed efforts rather than repentance for his sinful actions. Right? The passage in Hebrews 12, you can easily read that and think, Esau looked for repentance, wanted to change, and God prevented him. And so you can easily twist that and say, well, sometimes there's people that want to get saved and God says, sorry, I didn't choose you. And that is not the case. That is not the case. No man seeks after God and God turns him away. That's not the picture of Scripture. He's not crying tears of repentance. He's He's crying tears of frustration. He's saying, I had an opportunity to get it back and we failed we failed. He's crying over his failed efforts rather than repentance for his sinful actions. He's crying because he can't change what has happened. His choice can't be undone and the consequences can't be avoided now. Once again, we're we're shown to see that Esau is to blame for his predicament. It's not God choosing Jacob that's to blame here. And it's not Jacob deceiving Esau. Hebrews 12 puts the blame squarely on Esau. He was was an unholy man. A man who was uh, driven by immediate gratification. And he's to blame for this situation. He continues to lose. shared with you last week, if you ever thought he was trying to repent, that's squashed when you see him respond and say, I want to kill my brother. I want to kill him. He's not repentant. He's angry at his efforts being frustrated. All right, application lessons, and we'll, we'll wrap up here. First of all, God is determined and capable of keeping his word despite opposition and without a need for our scheming nobody can stop god's plans and he doesn't need us to jump in and help him when our help is not godly he's determined and capable of keeping his word despite opposition that summary sentence his plans are always accomplished despite our failures our failures just lead to consequences being included in his plan He's determined and capable of keeping his word despite opposition. Isaac couldn't stop it, and he didn't need Rebecca and Jacob to handle it the way they did. Number 2, when we try to work things out for good in our life, oftentimes we fail in producing good. Rebecca and Jacob may have tried to justify their actions by saying that they were they were they were looking towards the end, right? We're trying to fulfill God's plans. Everything that we're doing is meant to to carry out what God has revealed. But oftentimes when we try to get in there and start working things out for good and rather than trusting that God will do that, right? The promise is that God works things for good, not that God empowers us to work things out for good. He works good in our life. When we try to do it, oftentimes we fail in producing good and we mess things up and consequences get included into God's good plans. Number three, we can never allow our natural affections to override our love for God and his word. I'm not not discounting the fact that it may have been a real struggle for uh, for, uh, Isaac. He may have had genuine affection at times for Esau. And his affections were contrary to what God was telling him to do. And that's not all the unlikely for us to experience something similar. For our natural affections to tell us to do one thing. And it override what we know God would tell us to do. We see this so much when it comes to marital breakdown in the area of affairs. Where the one spouse says, everything inside of me is telling me this is the right thing to do. This is the good thing to do. I've sat and talked with individuals who felt like that to stay in the marriage would have been worse than exiting the marriage. Because they weren't in love with their spouse anymore and there was no way to reconcile that marriage. And so exiting it and, and pursuing someone else's wife and breaking that marriage up. That once everything was cleaned up, then it would be better and it would be okay. That's when we let our natural affections and our natural perspective on the situation override our love for God and his word and what he reveals to be true. Number four, promoting God's glory is the only true way to see our children receive glory. You got two parents here that are all about promoting their children. And I see, you know, working in the, the occupation that I do, I see parents constantly that are all about the glory of their child. And they will come to aid their child and they will come to excuse responsibility for their child. They will beg teachers for better grades because their child had something going on that that caused them not to do their homework, that caused them not to study for that test. Give them another chance. My child has to be on the all A list. I've seen parents argue for, for sports positions. How dare you not play my child? How dare you not start my child? I've seen these parents do the exact same thing that these two parents are doing. They're all about their child. They're all about living through their child. They're all about promoting their child. And there can be some genuine good in that, right? We want what's best for our children. We, we mimic what God wants for his children, right? God wants what's best for his children. God wants to give good gifts to his children. So parents should absolutely want what's best for their children. But when the child's glory begins to supersede God's glory then we've got a problem. Then we've established our child as an idol. And I think Isaac had to watch the idol of Esau crumble before him before he started to tremble and say, I have been really wrong in this. I've been really wrong in this. Promoting God's glory is the only true way to see our children receive glory because when we promote God's glory in our family and we direct our kids to God's glory and not their own glory, then what God promises is true. The one who humbles himself, the one who serves, that's the one that God exalts, right? That's the one that God lifts up. Jesus sets that example for us in Philippians 2. Number five, don't be successful at influencing the world, but fail to influence your family. Man, Isaac was really successful in chapter 26, right? All the things that he was doing, led Abimelech and other people that were not god fears to come and say, wow, God has been with you this whole time, right? And they're giving glory to God because of Isaac's example and because of what Isaac has been doing. And we don't ever have any inclination to see Isaac go to Esau and say, son, what you're doing is wrong. The bitterness that you've caused our family is wrong. You're not to marry these women. We don't see any confrontation by Isaac. Not to say that it didn't happen, but we certainly don't have it in the text. And we certainly see Esau continue to play out in a sinful way. You know, I don't want to be guilty of of influencing this church, influencing my school and failing to influence my family, right? If I'm more concerned about the discipleship of men in our church than I am my two sons and my daughter, then I've failed, I've failed, right? If I'm more concerned with, uh, with uh, building our school for God's glory than I am our family, then I've failed. I don't wanna be successful at influencing a bunch of other units and not my family unit. Isaac seems to have been successful at influencing people that were watching his family, but there seems to be a disconnect within his family. Number six, a healthy marriage requires an environment of healthy communication. I touched on this earlier. For whatever reason, the first option for Rebecca was not to confront her husband about his sinful choice. and this coming out of our our marriage retreat this weekend we were talk we were talking a little bit about this in our guy session yesterday just the difficulty within the marriage of how two people uh who are with each other constantly how they can uh encourage sanctification between each other right and we were talking about the fact that we have accountability groups and we have men in our church you know, in our context that speak in speaking to our life and speak truth into our life I certainly want to have an environment in my family where if I'm making a sinful choice and leading my family astray, that my wife can be comfortable to come to me and say, this isn't right. I don't want my wife to feel like she has to scheme behind my back and, and, and try to trick me or, or re, uh, recalculate me onto the right path. I hate the fact that Rebecca can't go to Isaac here and say, you're, you're wrong in this situation. Right? This is a clear thing, not a preference thing, a clear thing. You are being sinful here. Healthy marriage requires an environment of healthy communication. And number seven, for those that continue in sin, there is coming a day where no amount of tears will remove the consequences. This, this stands here and at us here at the end of the story as a reminder. it's a reminder of perseverance that we we persevere, we fight sin. That that's that's what a Christian does. It's a reminder to those that may be in sin. There's coming a day where no amount of tears and and no amount of confession will be able to remove the consequences. There's some choices that just bear consequences, and they're unavoidable at that point. Esau made choices, and by the end of this story, no amount of tears could remove those consequences. I want to read one passage in close in James chapter 3. I meant to read it. With application number one, uh, God is determined and capable of keeping his word despite opposition and without a need for scheming. James chapter 3 says, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. I think we see that in this story. There was selfish ambition and jealousy, and it certainly produced disorder and vile practices. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace let's pray together. Father, we praise you and thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to reflect upon the truths contained in this passage. God, we are reminded once again that the Old Testament heroes that are set before us and are an example of faith to us still fall short of being the promised seed to crush the serpent. God, we were reminded that Despite all of their best examples of faith, they are incapable of saving themselves. God, I thank you for including the blemishes upon their character. One, for us to to learn from them so that we don't have to experience the same type of uh, bitter experience in our own life. We can see examples in Scripture to not follow. But God, I'm thankful, too, that you put these in Scripture to remind us that Jesus is completely set apart from all these other human beings. That despite Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob and their faith and obedience, that Jesus Christ is distinctly different. And Father, we praise you and thank you for sending your son in human form to come and to be tempted as we are, yet without sin. We're thankful that when we talk about Jesus, we only talk about obedience. We don't talk about any flawed character traits. We don't talk about any mistakes. Father, I'm thankful that as you continued to produce seed after seed after seed, you were pointing us to a greater seed that had to come. A seed that had to be more than human. A seed that had to be God in flesh. And so we praise you and thank you for Jesus. And God, I pray that we would learn from this account, that we would learn that you have promises, and those promises are good for us, and those promises are meant to satisfy us. There's nothing in this world that can be offered to us that would be better than your promises. Help us to learn that lesson from from Isaac today. God, I pray that you would help us to understand that there's no part of your plan that would require us to do something that could be misconstrued as scheming or, or deception. God, help us to learn the lesson from Rebecca that we can fully trust in you to accomplish your plans. And that you can do miraculous things when necessary, like stopping a human prophet from cursing when he intended to. You can do whatever necessary to accomplish your plans. Help us to learn that we can avoid consequences being included by simply trusting in you. God, I pray that we would um, learn from the examples of Jacob and Esau. God, that we would not give in to pressure from others to act in a certain way to do things. God, that we would trust in you. God, that we would value the eternal over the immediate. God, help us to turn while there's time to turn from our sin, to repent while there's opportunity to repent. God, we thank you for your delayed judgment. We thank you for your desire to see all to come to repentance. Father, I pray that we would learn those lessons as we continue to submit to Jesus. God, I pray as we leave here today, we'd be driven by your spirit, not by our flesh, I pray that, God, it would infiltrate into all of our relationships. For our men as we lead our families, God, I pray that we would lead well, that we would influence this world, but that our influence for this world would start with influencing our family, shepherding our wives and our children to follow you. God, help us to learn from this. Help us to seek your glory in all that we do this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.